0: I'm Chow Tu and I'm here to give you a preview of some of the Slate Plus episodes we did this season for one year. So with these episodes we wanted to expand a bit and explore more of 1977 so we got some Slatesters to dive in into the culture of the year and talk about stuff that we couldn't get into in the main episodes. That's what we try to do here at Slate Plus. We want to give you more of your favorite people talking about the topics that they know and you can get a fuller sense of the story at hand. So first off, we had June Thomas talking about gay culture in 1977 with Madeleine Ducharme, expanding upon the Anita Bryant episode at the beginning of the season. So June was a main consultant on the main episode, and it just felt right to have her come on and talk more about the history that she knows a lot about.
2: But there also are some very basic challenges with queer history, which is that we weren't really talked about. In the media, our struggles were not covered in the paper. You know, the New York Times is now very supportive, and f- for the most part, and full of queer journalists. <laughs> i <was> gonna say <laughs> for the most part, yeah. There was just some op eds that might challenge that, but you know, certainly compared to again, even ten years ago, certainly twenty years ago, and certainly forty-five years ago. But I think that. There was something about Anita Bryant specifically, which we can talk about later, that made this a more of a national story. But so many of the gay rights struggles were effectively local stories. And so, as again, the episode mentions, there were fights in Eugene, Oregon and in Colorado later and in you know St. Paul, Minnesota. There were a lot of these local battles you know, that followed a pretty similar template and effectively did become a template uh, later on. But those other stories didn't have the same resonance because they didn't have Anita Bryant. And it wasn't just that she was this figure who was known and who was a singer and who, you know, had a certain image, but also because of Orange Juice, that she was known because of her sponsorship right. by, you know, the Florida Orange Juice uh, entity. And so, <laughs> you know, that it was both something that people could latch on and kind of have all these OJ you know, riffs, but also that, you know, that made this story be something that mattered outside of the area where people were voting, uh, which generally speaking was not the case, or it was only covered in the gay media, which even very few gay people read or saw. So, you know, I think it's more that it's amazing that it's endured in the way that it has, because it's endured more than any of these other struggles.
0: Then we had Chris Malanfi from Hit Parade and Evan Chung talk about the music of 1977. So these are two big music history buffs, and I knew that they would have a lot of fun diving into this year of disco and punk and pop and everything in between.
3: Well, the thing about 1977 is it's kind of a bifurcated year, right? There's the way that a rock fan or a CBGB goer would remember 1977. And then there's the way a chart fan would remember 1977. I mean, when I think of the charts in 1977, the two words that leap to mind are disco and schlock. Mm -hmm. You know, we're kind of approaching the peak of disco as a pop force. I mean, disco is considerably older than 1977, right? If you want to date it to when it was taking off in, you know, gay clubs, that dates all the way back to the early 70s. There are even roots dating back to the late 60s. But the popularization of disco begins around 1974, 75, and is really starting to take flight by 77. But it's interesting how I think a radio listener in 1977 would probably have thought of disco as one major element in pop, not the Mm -hmm. dominant element of pop. And that all changes by the end of the year. And I'll get to why in a second. Mm
2: -hmm. And then I
3: also said schlock because, you know, we're coming out of a period in the early to mid 70s where coming out of the singer songwriter movement there's just a lot of what was called M.O.R., middle of the road, or AM radio pop, sunshiny pop, much of it rather treacly. You know, you've got 1977 number one hits like uh, Torn Between Two Lovers by Mary McGregor or Don't Give Up On Us by David Soul. If these songs don't ring a bell, it's because they don't have a great legacy. Or if you do know them, you probably think they're really drippy and gross. So (laughs) that's kind of what's still on the charts in 1977. There are also some great number one hits, which we can talk about. But disco and schlock is kind of the mix that you've got. And sometimes the disco is also schlock. And that's not necessarily an insult. Like, I Just Want to Be Your Everything by Andy Gibb is both schlock and disco, and I kind of love it. But, Mm -hmm. you know, your mileage may vary. That's on the the AM radio side of the dial. And then on the rock side, whether it's what you're hearing on FM radio, which is, you know, kind of AOR, album-oriented rock. You've got the Eagles peaking with Hotel California mm-hmm. at this time. Or if you live in New York City and you're going to CBGB, punk is at an absolute apex in 1977, right? There there are literally people who refer to that year as the class of 77, mm. because the roster of albums that came out is just staggering. It's everything from the Sex Pistols, Nevermind the Bollocks, to The Clash's self-titled debut. To Elvis Costello's "My Aim Is True," uh, the Damned's "Damn Damn Damned," you know the Stranglers' "Wire," Suicide. I mean, the list just goes on and on. It's an amazing, amazing year for for punk rock and kind of a year zero for a lot of music that would then infect the mainstream in the '80s, but was still underground in the '70s. So yeah, it's it's a bit of a schizo year. It's kind of all over the place, but. Um, you know, there's good pop and schlocky pop and, you know, everything in between.
0: <laughs> Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered chumbacasino.com.
3: It's my little escape.
0: Now, Judy's the life of the party.
3: Oh, baby, Mama's bringing home the bacon.
0: Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. <laughs> So, with the main show covering Roots, which was the biggest TV event of 1977, I knew that we had to go a little off-kilter to talk about what else was going on with TV, so I had Slate's TV critic, Willa Paskin and Matthew Desham do a bit of research into what else was going on in this year. They dug up a weird soap opera satire called Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman, and a new TV innovation called Cube. Here's Willa talking about Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman.
4: So, it's called Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman, and... The idea is essentially that there's like all these crazy things happening around Mary Hartman, who's this housewife who has like, you know, lives in a small town, a working class town with her, you know, parents and her kid and her husband who um, has sexual dysfunction and the cops and the neighbors <laughs> and everyone's like totally basically very bizarre. And she's really spaced out and like cannot react appropriately to everything happening around her. She's played by Louise Lasser, who's Woody okay. Allen's ex-wife, and she already was at this point. But she's, like, such a space cadet. Like, that's, <laughs> that's the character on purpose. So, like, mm-hmm. she's, like, staring into the middle distance, like, talking to a friend in her house, talking about how there can't be any waxy buildup on the floor, but there is waxy buildup, but it says there can't be any waxy buildup on the product for the waxy buildup. It's very weird watching it. Like, yeah. I've tried to watch the show, and you're like, this is really long and strange. And then there's, like, another clip where she finds out that um, there's, like, a serial killer loose in the in the town. And she's like, who would kill, like, two goats and, or, like, two chickens and eight goats? And then she's like, and all the people. But, like, when she says all the people, she's, like, already reading her product. Like, it's just supposed to be, like, a satire of soap operas, but also of, like that emptiness of like American life.
0: And finally, we couldn't not mention another big cultural phenomenon of 1977, which is a little movie called Star Wars. So I got Sam Adams and Karen Hahn to talk about that, but also some cult horror movies that came out the year and the blockbusters that really still resonate today.
1: Just to sort of set the scene for this a little bit, this is uh, two years after Jaws, which is sort of conventionally kind of the birth of modern summer blockbuster culture. Uh, George Lucas is coming into this as the director of American Graffiti, which is a very successful sort of the pretty traditional 50s coming of age movie, and THX 1138, which is a, I guess, a fairly sort of, you know, highbrow sci-fi movie or whatever, not necessarily something that you would see Flowing right into this. But yes, yeah, Star Wars comes out um, very heavily influenced by. That kind of Flash Gordon serials of his youth, and just becomes this immediate sensation. I think there was already a lot of anticipation for it. Um, as you mentioned, it you know opened in forty theaters, which is not they had not yet developed the open in four thousand theaters at the same time uh, strategy, sort of saturation bombing mm-hmm. strategy that we use nowadays. <laughs> but yeah, it, it's really interesting to go back and even you know to look at the initial reviews for it, and you really see that. Critics, among other people, like, really saw this as – some of them just saw it as, like, this, you know, great, amazing box of candy that got opened up to everybody else. But they really did see it as kind of a cultural battleground right away. They were like, this is a movie Uh that's made for an adult audience but kind of treats them like kids in a way. And some of them were like, this is great. And some of them were like, if movies go down this road, the cinema is ruined forever. I would say that it is not ruined forever, but it is one of those movies that you really, you watch it and it's just like, oh, that's where, like, if you watch it again, as if you haven't seen it before, which is extremely difficult. But if you try to think of yourself as a person just coming to see a movie like this in 1977, like you really see how much came from it, how much of the tone and approach of popular culture is still defined by this movie um, so many years Mm -hmm. later.
0: So that's all really to say that if you enjoyed this season of one year, you don't want to miss out on these Slate Plus episodes. We also released an extended version of Josh Levine's interview with LeVar Burton about his experience making Roots, which you can hear in our TV episode. So if you've gotten this far and you really want to hear these Slate Plus episodes, you really need to subscribe to Slate Plus. It's only $1 for your first month and you'll be supporting one year and all of our other Slate podcasts. You'll also be able to hear them all ad-free, and you'll have access to every single article on Slate.com. To find out more and sign up now, go to Slate.com slash one year plus. That's Slate.com slash O-N-E-Y-E-A-R-P-L-U-S. Thanks for listening.